Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be talking about the Epistle of James. Now, you might think it's James in the First Presidency, but we suspect it's more likely to be James the Just, which was the brother of Jesus, one of Mary and Joseph's sons. He's going to be a faithful leader of the church in Jerusalem. And one of the things I love about the book of James is James is all about practical religion. Every day, this is what the gospel means. We're basically just going to hit a list of marvelous gospel advice, and it's a lot less philosophical. It's not deep doctrine. It's simple realities about treating people correctly and seeking God. If, if I could boil down James to two simple thoughts, it's the idea of connecting with God and connecting with people in a very practical way. Not that deep doctrine doesn't have a place. I think there's a time and a place for that. I just am fascinated that someone so close to the inner personal circle of the Savior would have so much practical advice for us. One of the things we learned about James from the historian Josephus is that even his enemies appreciated who he was. He was known throughout Jerusalem as a very pious Jew, but he also believed in Jesus. So James really walked between these two worlds. He understood the Jewish community, and he could lead the church as the bishop in Jerusalem, but at the same time, he was able to reach out to the Christians and teach that Jesus is the Messiah that's prophesied of in the Old Testament. And so because of that, James was in a very interesting position. You see, Paul was out with the Gentiles, and Paul was out bringing the Gentiles into the Christian church, but James lived amongst law followers. Many of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were very strict on following the law, and James was able to accommodate them and still point them to Jesus. Some of the people that lived in James's day that were Jews, that were looking at the Christian movement from the outside, saw James's piety and his strict religious observance, and they admired him. And so because of this, he was able to, through his actions, be a light to those people and bring many of them and point them to Jesus. James's words are significant, and here's why. In 66 AD, just a few years after he's executed, there is a revolt in Jerusalem. And some of the things that James is going to say in this book pertain to that revolt and the political and social circumstances that are kind of swirling around right about this time in the early 60s. I think that a lot of his comments in this letter pertain to those social situations. You see, before Jesus was ever born, the Roman general Pompey comes into the area of Judea, and he cuts down the territory, 
and he makes many of the peasants landless before Jesus is ever born. So if you were a peasant during Pompey's time when he comes in, you had land, he comes in, he takes out the land, uh, he makes you landless, but there were very wealthy landowners who were able to curry favor with Pompey, and they were able to amass large swaths of land. And so what happens if you're a peasant? Now you are somebody who works as a servant on someone else's land. And that was the situation in the time of James, is that there were many people who were landless tenants who worked on the land, and they had to pay these super high taxes. Remember Herod the Great and all of his building projects. He's doing so many things with all these building projects, and so the taxes were kind of high. And so many of the small farmers who actually owned land during Herod's administration actually had to sell their land because they couldn't pay the taxes. And so in the first century, many peasants working on these massive feudal estates started to resent the government. They started to hate the taxes, and they started to talk among others, especially a group of Jews known as the Zealots. And the Zealots had this view of, hey, it's not their land. It's God's land. It's the people's land. Let's revolt. And it took some time, but eventually they're going to revolt in 66 AD. Now, until that time, there's this undercurrent. There's this angst among the people that are disenfranchised. They're really frustrated. And James is going to tell them, hey, hold on. It's going to be okay. And he, like Bryce says, he's going to give them some very practical direction. But he's also calling out some of these wealthy landowners. Now, to add fuel to the fire, in the midst of all of this, the high taxes, the landlessness, there's a series of famines where there's massive grain shortages. So imagine you're working and you're landless, and your taxes are high, and now there's no grain. And so because of these grain shortages during these time periods, there were many times of rioting. People would riot and basically protest the government, and this caused a lot of tension with the Romans there in Jerusalem. And this really gave fuel for the zealots and their argument that, hey, we should revolt. This should happen. And so all of these things are happening when James is writing this, and if he dies, as has been stated by the historians, in 62, remember the revolt is in 66. The local high priest, Ananus, in Jerusalem, Ananus II, he executes James. So if we understand what's going on right during this time period and what's coming, we can see a lot of James's advice as having relevance in their life. He's not just talking about fairness in society, but he's also going to talk about issues of humility and pride, patience and endurance. He's going to talk a lot in here about the balance or the agreement between faith and works, trials and temptation. He's going to talk a lot about wisdom and speech. You see, in the wisdom literature of the ancients, there were all these exhortations about the power of the tongue and the need for those that are wise to have controlled speech. And so James is going to emphasize the importance of using words to build up and encourage others, but he's also going to warn us about ways that our tongue or our speech can cause damage. You see, the revolt was with swords, but it was preceded with words. And the words we use have consequences. 
And so we're going to see all of these ideas in the, the epistle of James, which is really kind of short. Uh, and, and by the way, we'll reference this later in the podcast, but just know that during the Reformation, Martin Luther really struggled with James. In fact, to him, it didn't represent the gospel message, because in James, we read things like, hey, we have to do stuff. Like, following Jesus isn't just this belief or this mental assent. No, we got to roll up our sleeves and get to work. And for Martin Luther, he struggled with that. Now, I'm going to give him a pass a little bit because of the fight he was having with Catholicism. But at the same time, I think the pendulum went too far with the way that Martin Luther approached James. And so as a Latter-day Saint, and Bryce, I'm sure you would probably agree with this, wouldn't you, that amongst Latter-day Saints, we love quoting it, don't we? We do, because we've kind of shifted with James to the more practical side of religion, kind of as a counter to what Christianity often does and shifts towards the more philosophical, just believe in Jesus and have faith and you'll be saved. So we find ourselves naturally loving James. And so we shouldn't do the same thing and push our religion too far to the practical side and forget the faith and doctrine and what is it that we believe inside. But I love James because religion in general sometimes focuses on, well, let's argue about what we believe instead of pointing out that true religion is about taking care of people. It's back to Jesus in the Last Supper where he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Not how many scriptures you have memorized, not how many callings you've held, not your show of spirituality. You are my disciple if you love and take care of people. And I think in today's world that is definitely needed to emphasize I am very much reminded when Brigham Young found out that the rescued pioneer companies that got stuck in the snow were about to arrive in Salt Lake. The saints were gathering for general conference as those poor saints that got stuck on the plains were about to arrive. Brigham Young rose up in general conference and said, this afternoon's meeting will be omitted. For I wish the sisters to go home and prepare to give those who have just arrived a mouthful of something to eat and wash them and nurse them. You know that I would give more for a dish of pudding and milk and baked potato and salt were I in this same situation as those persons who have just come in than I would for all your prayers. Though you were to stay here all afternoon in prayer, prayer is good. But when baked potatoes and pudding and milk are needed, prayer will not supply their place on this occasion. Give every duty its proper time and place. So this week in Come Follow Me, we're going to focus very much on the practical side of religion. So with that, let's jump into the first chapter. There's only five chapters this week. And we come right out of the gate with that relationship with Heavenly Father. A very practical notion for when challenges happen in our life, when prayers aren't answered the way we wanted them to be answered, and we're wondering, is there a God? Why isn't he paying attention to me? Why isn't he blessing me? Let's start in verse 2 of chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy 
when ye fall into diverse temptations. And I would probably soften temptations more with challenges and tribulation because of what he says next. Know this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That's just beautifully and eloquently stated. What you can't see right now is that the resistance you're in, resistance strengthens muscles. Elder Maxwell taught that a patient disciple will not be surprised or undone when the church is misrepresented. Peter, being tough-minded as well as tender, made the test of our patience even more precise and demanding when he said, For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted by your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And then Elder Maxwell continues, he says, The dues of discipleship are high indeed, and how much we can take so often determines how much we can then give. Now, right after James says we need to work patience and we need to go through these temptations, he says this in verse 4, Let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And then he says, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And commenting on this verse, Elder Bruce McConkie said that this single verse of Scripture has had a greater impact and a far more reaching effect upon mankind than any other single sentence ever recorded by any prophet in any age. Now think about that. We're back to this practical religion. I lack wisdom. I need to go to God. And not only that, Mike, but notice the emphasis on the every man. If any of you lack wisdom, God giveth liberally to all men. Notice the emphasis, any one of you. There is not an elite club that God listens to more than others. Now, you and I know that where greater obedience exists to law, we receive greater blessings. And I will save that for another day. But God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't like this person more than that person. He doesn't listen to that prayer more quickly than that prayer over there. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. So yes, you're going to have tough times. Be patient. If you don't understand something, then just ask Heavenly Father, who will listen to every single one of you, and he will answer you. He gives liberally, but you need to act in faith, nothing wavering. Doubt and faith cannot exist in the same place at the same time. Do you see that very practical? We worship a God who listens to every prayer, including yours. So ask him, talk to him, especially when the trial doesn't seem to make sense and is trying your faith. Now that leads to a theme all throughout James. We're going to see it many times, so let's just pick it up one time. And this idea of the rich person, the poor person, the laborer, James is going to spend a lot of time talking about not having favorites ourselves and not being a respecter of persons, just like God is not a respecter of persons. 
So we have James 1, 9, where it really starts, where it says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass shall pass away. Now, this is where James is quoting Isaiah 46 and 7. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Skipping down to verse 14. These verses are discussing this idea that all flesh is grass, and the rich and the things that they have that they think are so certain, that they're so secure in, are not necessarily that way. You see, wealthy landowners at this time period were exploiting the poor throughout Judea. And James clearly has empathy for the people that are struggling. But remember, he's in Jerusalem. And many of the people in the city of Jerusalem were part of the wealthy or the upper class, or at least the middle class. But yet James knew enough of the people that worked out in the land. He knew enough of them that he's reaching out to them. Part of me thinks who he's really talking to are the rich. That's kind of how I see it, but I see him talking to both as well. Now, Old Testament and Jewish wisdom literature stress over and over again that the riches that we think are so certain, those are going to fade. And it also stresses this wisdom literature that God will vindicate the oppressed and the poor in the end, and that God will judge those who keep their wealth and don't share it with the poor. In other words, God gives wealth, but he expects us to do good with it. I remind you of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Even the very title of the parable is ironic because everyone would have known who the rich man was. Everyone would have known his name and no one would have known the beggar. But Jesus does not name the rich man and names the beggar. I think that's very indicative of what James is trying to do here. The rich man, whoever he was, oh, and Lazarus, the named beggar. Okay, now go to chapter 5. Look what it says here, verse 1. Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your gold and silver is cankered. Verse 4. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped and entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Now just know this, that in first century Palestine, many of the laborers had to have their daily wages at the end of the day just so that they could buy food for them and their families. And so they would work, they would get paid at the end of the day, and if the wealthy landowner or the person who was running the land, like the the steward that was running the land, if they didn't pay these workers at the end of the day, that would mean that the worker would come home to their family and their children would not eat food. And apparently, James is calling this out. One historian wrote, The income that absentee landowners received from agriculture was such that the wages they paid their workers could not even begin to reflect the profits that they accumulated by their work. Although the rich supported public building projects, they were far less inclined to pay sufficient wages to their workers. 
At least as early as the second century, Jewish teachers suggested that even failing to leave gleanings for the poor was robbing them. Now, if you remember that back in Leviticus 19, and we also discussed this in Ruth, that if I owned a lot of land, I went over the land with my workers and I did one harvesting. And then whatever was left, especially in the corners of the field or the edges of the field, those were the gleanings. I was supposed to leave that. And the reason I left that in the field was so that those that had less, the poor, could have something to eat. It was kind of their system of taking care of the less fortunate. Now, in another part of James, he talks about their laws and the way that they approach the poor. Go to the second chapter. He says this in James 2, verse 2. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Verse 6. But you have despised the poor. Now, the law that existed during this time, the Roman law basically said that if I'm of a lesser status, I cannot bring an accusation against someone of a higher status. And so the law in Rome at the time was actually preloaded against the poor. And there were many people that lived in Judea that said that that was wrong. And there were many philosophers that walked around during the Roman Empire, and they also decried the injustice of Roman law itself. And I think James is really calling this out, and he's basically saying, just because someone's rich doesn't mean they're better than you. And I think that's one of the messages of Christianity. Jesus over and over again emphasized this idea that before God, we are all equal. We are all children of God. Doesn't matter. Someone who's a slave, someone who's, who's rich. In Christianity, there is no distinction. There is no Jew, nor, nor Greek, nor male, nor female. We are all part of the family of God. That's a beautiful summary of exactly what James is trying to teach. Let's go back to chapter one and pick up a couple more. I really have grown to appreciate the idea in 13 and 14. Um, And I know so many people kind of blame the devil when bad things happen. And some people even push that the other way and say, well, this is, God's in charge of everything, therefore God did this. So the bad things that happen in my life, God did, or the devil did. And it's a quick blame someone else game that James is going to counter with this very simple truth that I didn't sin because the devil whispered a temptation in my ear. I sin, verse 14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. I am the reason. The natural man inside me is what I'm here to overcome. It's not the devil. It's not enduring what God has decreed definitively going to happen in my life. I am here to wrestle with the temptations of the natural man inside me. That's the enemy. And I need to accept that responsibility, that I was tempted because I wanted to do it. I yielded to the natural man inside me. It's not that the devil made me do it. It's not that God willed me to do it. 
I yielded to the natural man, and that's my choice and my agency, and I accept full responsibility for that. And I think that's the very practical advice that James is giving us, is don't be blaming someone else. Don't be blaming God. Don't be blaming the devil for the temptations and the yielding to those temptations. This verse and thoughts like this were really discussed a lot in Christian history. One of the people that discussed these ideas was uh, Augustine. Augustine lived around the 4th century, and he determined that grace is a free gift, and there's really nothing I can do. God wills my salvation because he is sovereign. God's kind of in charge of everything, and if good happens, it's because of God, and if bad happens, it's because of God. And we even read a verse like this that kind of says something like this. I don't necessarily agree with uh, the conclusion that's drawn, but Isaiah 45 verse 7 says, God speaking, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so Augustine had this view. Martin Luther, who's going to come later, he's an Augustinian monk, he's going to really wrestle with this, and this is why he struggles with James, because Martin Luther is of this position that he says basically, hey, I didn't will my salvation. It wasn't anything I had to do with it. God willed it. It's this free gift that works in me, and God has chosen me, and it just is what it is. It's kind of like this passive... Uh, receiving Jesus, and I'm not really involved in much of this. And yet we read this verse that Bryce just read about how, don't say when you're tempted, I'm tempted of God. That's James 1.13, because verse 14, we're all tempted when we're drawn away of our own lust and entice. In other words, we have agency. Speaking of this, President Kimball said, man is responsible for his own sins. It is possible that he may rationalize and excuse himself until the groove is so deep that he cannot get out without great difficulty, but he can resist. He can change. Temptation comes to all people. The difference between the reprobate and the worthy person is generally that one yielded and the other resisted. It is true that one's background may make the decision and the accomplishment easier or more difficult, but if they are alert, they still can control their future. This is the gospel message, and the message is this, personal responsibility. And I think that is the issue that James is addressing. This, in in my opinion, is one of the reasons why Luther really struggled with this. He struggled with the idea of our ability to influence our salvation. You see, to him, God is sovereign. And if God wills it, it will be so. And yet, when I read James, I see this play between God's will and my will, and I have a vote, I have a say. And I think that is sound Latter-day Saint doctrine, that because of our belief and agency, yes, God wills that I'm saved, but I have a voice in this matter. I cast a vote. Now, moving on, I love verse 19 as just practical religion. Be swift to hear, slow to speak slow to wrath. If that were more a description of those who professed Christianity and godlike behavior, I think it would really make a difference. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, 
and slow to wrath. You can't react and expect God to be with you. And this is the same idea. Make sure you understand, listen, process, take some time, and then speak. If you speak as a reaction to what you've heard or seen, it's often going to be misinformed, unbalanced with other things. So be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And that leads right to verse 22, one of the great classics of James' epistle. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. I wonder how many times he heard that from Jesus, growing up or otherwise. The master who caught that vision and told his brothers and sisters, we need to do the word. Remember when he says in in John chapter 7, if any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. And even that beautiful sermon, you know, the wise man built his house upon a rock, and the foolish man who's built his house upon a sand, the premise to that is, do you go out and do? Jesus said, if you hear these sayings and do them, you are like the wise man built upon a rock. Or if you don't do them, you're like the foolish man built upon the sand. So very practical advice that if you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus— then go do the works of Jesus. And that flows right into verse 26 of chapter 1 as well. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridle not his tongue, meaning he doesn't stop and think, he bridles not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, that man's religion is vain. Now, that's a powerful statement in our practical everyday lives. If you profess to follow Jesus, but you don't act the part, your religion is vain. Religion is about doing. It is certainly about believing. But religion is about doing. And so he says in verse 27, one of the absolute great verses of James and the Bible Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their afflictions and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Bryce, I just have to interject here that Jehovah in the Old Testament is the God of the widows and the fatherless. Over and over again, that's how he refers to himself. And I think James has probably read those verses in the Hebrew Bible, and he's emphasizing them to his audience. I really see that. And lest we think that the Book of Mormon doesn't share that same message, let me show it to you in the Book of Mormon. When Amulek is preaching to the poor Zoramites, and he's giving them all this advice about cry unto him in prayer, cry unto him in your fields, cry unto him in your houses, cry unto him against the power of your enemies, cry unto him, cry, 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 pour out your souls. And then it says, Alma 34, 28, And now behold, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all. For after you have done all these things, meaning the prayer, if ye turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and the afflicted and impart of your substance, if you have to those who stand in need, 
I say unto you, if you do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain and availeth you nothing. There it is in the Book of Mormon, testifying of what James is teaching. If you stand up and bear testimony of the truths of this restoration, if you proclaim in your heart that you are a believer of the Book of Mormon, but do not do the works of the Book of Mormon by taking care of people in need, your religion is vain. That's a harsh lesson that we need to understand. Elder Bednar said, True faith is focused in and on the Lord and always leads to righteous action. And I really think that's a good definition, that true faith is going to lead me to do something. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about doing what we should be doing. It's about taking care of people. Some of the great things, some of the great pillars of Western society, uh, many people don't even realize this, that they're rooted in Christian ideals. You see, we've talked about this, that Roman law did not give access to equality before the law. It didn't. If I was someone of a higher status, I had advantage. And so the care for the orphans and widows was this practice that was going on in the first century that James was incorporating, that he was emphasizing and pushing And I believe it's because it's coming from Jesus. Remember, James is Jesus's brother. James is the son of Joseph and Mary. He probably spent more time with Jesus than any of the apostles. He's probably at least high up on that list. Now, look in James 2, verse 10. This can be kind of challenging. This is how it reads. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. That can be kind of confusing. Joseph Fielding Smith, in Answers to Gospel Questions, Volume 3, said this, you must be willing to accept and live all the laws. In other words, the kingdom of heaven can't operate if Bryce is saying, hey, I need to live the law except for these three, and I'm living in the kingdom of heaven and saying, hey, I'm okay, I just don't, don't want to live these six laws. Uh, and then someone else says, well, I'm okay, but I don't want to live these two laws. Uh, it doesn't work that way. And so in his estimation, he's reading this verse and he's saying, listen, if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, you must be willing to accept all of them and live them. Now that may take some time for us to get there. And we've had that discussion in other podcasts about what it means to be made perfect and the grace of Christ and our ability to follow law and how the Lord will make us and help us and aid us to be better people. But when it comes to the law, when it comes to living the law of the celestial kingdom, that's kind of the deal. Now, in James's day, there were Jewish teachers that did distinguish between heavier and lighter sins, but they felt that God required obedience to even the smallest commandment. We read this in the Mishnah. To them, these Jewish leaders, the willful violation of even a minor transgression was tantamount to rejecting the entire law. That was a common teaching in this time period. And so the point here is that rejecting the law of economic impartiality in Leviticus 19, or the general principle of love that's behind it, that's Leviticus 19.18, was tantamount to rejecting the whole authority of God. 
And so that was a common thing that they would discuss in this first century is, okay, are there rankings? Are there some sins that are worse than others? And some of them would kind of parse these out and say, well, this one is a lighter sin than this one. But many of the Jewish thinkers in James's day came to the conclusion that even a small sin, if I'm not willing to repent of it, it's as if I'm rejecting the whole law. And here's how I would explain it. How many telestial and terrestrial things can I take into the celestial kingdom? Can I slip a telestial thing into the celestial kingdom? You know I can't. If I'm going to go into the celestial kingdom, it's by wholly and completely accepting the celestial law and letting go of everything, even the smallest portion of the telestial world. I have to let go. If I'm unwilling to let go of one little thing, it's going to keep me in that lower kingdom, as if I were embracing all of the telestial law. And so I think that's the idea. Now, don't stress over that if I've got a little bit of telestial in me, because that's the portion of mortality that I'm trying to overcome. I have some time, but eventually to walk into the celestial kingdom, I have to let go of all terrestrial and telestial sins. I can't take any of them with me. But we keep progressing. We keep working. We keep striving. And the Lord's grace is sufficient. It is my belief that this is a process and that as we grow in grace, we grow grace for grace. And grace to grace. Yeah. The light will grow brighter and brighter until the perfect day and we will be brought into the presence of the Father, just men and just women made perfect through the atonement of Christ because of his grace and his blood and our participation in that process. Which leads us back to our discussion about faith and works, and then in chapter 2, verse 17, perhaps the second most well-known verse of Scripture from James, after, if any of you lack wisdom, is this one. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. They are interconnected because my works are the manifestation of my faith. What I believe will manifest itself in how I live and what I do. Going back to chapter 1, if I say I am a religious man, but I don't bridle my tongue, then my works reveal what I really believe. If you say you profess Jesus, and that's your faith, but you don't do what you can to live like Jesus, then they're dead because they are interconnected. Works are the manifestation of what I believe. Now, you can take that two ways, and I know, you know, progression, and we're growing, and we're trying to get there, but you can take that two ways. You can say, this is what I believe, therefore, this is how I should act. The other way is, if I'm acting like this, then it reveals what I really believe. So faith reveals an expected work. If I have faith in Jesus, if I proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm unkind to other people, then my faith is dead because there's a discrepancy. 
My faith in believing in Jesus would expect a work that I'm not showing. And the reality is, my works of being unkind to other people are revealing what I really believe. Therefore, faith and works are inseparably connected. And that's a powerful statement. Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. James 2, verses 14 through 26 is this whole discussion. And I, and I see what you're saying here about how we've got to have works in conjunction with our faith. And yet Martin Luther really did struggle with this. And he talked about over and over again that we're justified by our faith. Uh, but this is really difficult because we read in James 2, verse 24, it reads, "'Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only.'" This is the opposite of Romans 5. Uh, Romans 5, 1 reads, "'Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ.'" Now, with Romans 5, 1, and with James 2, 24, it can kind of be difficult to kind of work through. Brother Kent Jackson wrote this. He wrote, In the letter of James, it is clear that the apostle was contending against incorrect ideas concerning the nature of faith in relationship to Christian works. His corrective words include, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And under emphasis on the works of the gospel is perhaps not the kind of problem that would bring all of Christianity to ruin. And James gives us no hint that he expected wholesale apostasy because of it. Yet those who were guilty of disregarding the importance of works had a dead religion, to use James's word, and a dead religion certainly has no power to save. Perhaps without James's letter, more serious problems could have developed. So Brother Jackson's calling this out, saying that perhaps the letter that James wrote really did help keep Christianity in the way. And yet, I think Christianity in a sense, at least as I read Martin Luther and his push against Catholic Christianity, I see some of Martin Luther's conclusions taking the pendulum too far. Now, a Latter-day Saint and Greek scholar, Brent Schmidt, commenting on these verses in James 2, verses 17 through 26, gives us the following. He writes, These Orthodox Catholic doctrines that Reformers adopted include the total depravity of man, the nature of God, original sin, and unconditional free grace. According to Philip Carey, Luther is notoriously no friend to free will and his utterly unevasive commitment to prevenient grace includes no commitment at all to our will's freedom to choose the path of salvation. In other words, Martin Luther really struggled with this idea of free will. He sees God's grace is something that I cannot evade. It's just going to happen. Brother Schmidt continues, Rather, he professes his gladness that God has taken my salvation out of my hands into his, making it depend on his choice and not mine. This is Martin Luther saying these things. And has promised to save me not by my works or by my exertion, but by his grace and mercy. 
Martin Luther felt that the Sermon on the Mount was the devil's masterpiece because it required too much of Christians. He notoriously relegated the epistle of James, which emphasized that faith without works is dead, to the refuse pile because it had no gospel quality to it. In all fairness, it must be recognized that Luther was engaged in a polemical struggle with the Roman Catholic Church, and it really was a struggle for his personal survival. Certainly for Latter-day Saints, Luther played a role, a central role, in world history in helping to prepare us for the religious liberty in which the gospel could someday be restored, and one in which the Bible was available to all people of all languages. However, at the same time, Luther, who was originally an Augustinian monk, Luther did perpetuate the Augustinian interpretation of free grace that has continued to perplex Christendom about how to achieve eternal life, the greatest gift of God. And so I'm acknowledging that James 2 is a battlefield for Martin Luther, but I think for Latter-day Saints, it need not be. I think we're right back to what Bryce said at the very beginning of this podcast. This is practical religion. I have agency. I'm justified by my faith. Verse 24 says, what I do matters. It's part of it too. And you know what? Just like I have a body with a spirit and a body, verse 26 says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, I would add this. Do you see how the problem comes from taking a verse written to that people in that situation and applying it to this people written in that situation? That's the problem. What prophets, seers, and revelators say to people is specific to their situation. It's trying to balance them. I love one of my favorite authors, Arthur Henry King, said it this way. The principles of the gospel are twisted if they are applied in precisely the same way each time. But they remain true to themselves if they are applied in the way that is appropriate to the circumstances. And the way that is appropriate to the circumstances comes from following the impulses of the Holy Ghost. I think that's beautifully stated. Therefore, the reality is faith and works go hand in hand. You can't separate them. Now, can I emphasize to one group, faith, that you need to increase your faith. You are saved by faith because they're relying too much on their works. Yes, that would be appropriate. Could I say to another group who's relying too much on their faith, you need to go out and do. You you need to increase your works because you are saved by works. And both statements would be trying to balance a group that is off track. But both statements applied to the other group would actually push them further off track. So everything needs to be balanced. But I think the doctrine James is teaching is clear and true, that faith is manifested by works and works manifest our faith. Now, to say that one group needs one or the other depends on their circumstances. Yeah. And what if all of James 2 is written to some of the more wealthy in Jerusalem? If you read it through that lens, to me, it really makes more sense. Now, that leads us to chapter 3 and the idea of governing our tongue. And then he just makes this beautiful comparison. In verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, We put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. 
And I have had ranchers tell me that if you can steer the head of a horse, you basically are influencing the horse's whole body. So we put a bit in a horse's mouth so that we can turn their head, and then the horse will go that direction. And then in verse 4, it's the idea of a very, very large ship is turned about by a very small rudder. And the idea here is that the tongue, and I don't know that it's the physical tongue as much as it's the sharp instrument the tongue can become. The words we use and the pain we can inflict with our words are like that little rudder or the bridle, and they turn our whole body. And so I love that James adds in verse 5, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And you think, you remember that old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Completely wrong. Throw sticks and stones at me any day. It's the words that hurt the most and cut the deepest. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. We've all seen examples of a small little fire that got out of control and burned thousands of acres. Such are the words we use. The words we speak can become a great fire. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire. Now, controlled fire makes our lives so much better. It cooks our food. We smell. We see so many, we travel, so many things in my life are better because we have learned to control fire. When fire is out of control, it is so destructive, and so are our words. President Nelson said in his April 2023 General Conference talk, peacemakers needed. He said, my dear brothers and sisters, how we treat each other really matters. How we speak to and about others at home, at church, at work, and online really matters. Today, I am asking us to interact with others in a higher, holier way. Please listen carefully. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy that we can say about another person, whether to his face or behind her back, that should be our standard of communication. That from a modern prophet. The tongue is a fire. And how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Now that leads us to chapter 4, James chapter 4, and there's some wonderful little nuggets here as well. Verse 3, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Now just a brief comment, I know we've talked about this in other podcasts, but If you are going to pray in the name of Jesus and ask for something that is clearly not the things that Jesus wants to give, then don't. You're not going to receive it because you are consuming it upon your lust. 
I love that advice. In verse 4, he says, Know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, we need to be careful with that because I am trying to be a celestial person in a telestial world. Now, in one sense, I need to be friends with the mammon of unrighteousness so that I can do the works of God. We've heard Jesus teach that. Be ye the friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. I need to live successfully in this world, and that means working with the people of the world. So what it's saying here is, if I am trying to be celestial but have become a little too comfortable in the telestial world with telestial things, then I am losing my celestialness. Because celestialness and telestialness are enemies with each other. Eventually, one will pull me fully in. Either the telestial part of me will pull me out of the celestial, or the celestial part of me will pull me out of the telestial. So I think what James is trying to say is, if you're trying to be celestial, don't be too comfortable in this telestial world. The next one, verse 8, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. He repeats that in the Doctrine and Covenants. You initiate, he'll respond. Come close to God, and he will meet you there. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. And then verse 11 is kind of back to that idea, speak not evil one of another, brethren. Which now leads us to chapter 5. We've talked a lot about chapter 5 in terms of rich men, you need to weep, and what Mike said earlier but we get into some very practical living of the gospel as well. So James chapter 5, verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then this beautiful statement, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. I love how it ends in verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, and I would add woman, availeth much. So go get the elders, get a blessing, have all of those things done and pray. Do you see that beautiful balance of faith and works being illustrated here? Pray with your faith that the Lord heal them, but then go get the elders Have them anoint him in the name of the Lord. That's an action that shows a manifestation of faith because the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous avail much. We can do a great thing with our prayers. Now, I know there's a balance there because we don't want to interfere with Heavenly Father and what he knows is best. But in those circumstances where our faith can and does make a difference, we ought to effectually pray fervently for the righteous to be healed. Speaking of these verses, President Hinckley said, I venture to say that there is scarcely a faithful elder within the sound of my voice who could not recount instances in which this healing power has been made manifest in behalf of the sick. It is the healing power of Christ, and there is much sickness among us other than that of the body. 
Sometimes I've had students ask me, Brother Day, how come the church news doesn't publish the miracles that are happening? How come we don't talk more about these things? And Elder Oaks commenting on this said, although we know many cases where people have been blessed by priesthood authority and they've been healed, we rarely refer to these healings in our public meetings because modern revelation cautions us to not boast ourselves of these things, neither speak them before the world. For these things are given unto you for your profit and your salvation. In that instance, Elder Oaks is quoting section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 73. And so I think these miracles do happen. In my estimation, they happen every day, but you're not going to read about them in the church news. They happen quietly in the lives of humble members of the church day by day as they walk the balance between their faith in Christ and their works in living the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, forgiving one another, confessing their faults, having righteous prayers, and praising the name of Jesus. I really do see this amongst all of our people on a daily basis in the quiet lives of these saints. Which leads us to the last two verses, and I love this coming together of God in my life and other people in my life. Watch this connection. It's beautiful. Verse 19, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him, the converter, not the converted, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of his own sins. Now, I added the word own because he's clearly speaking here of the missionary. Clearly, the person who was converted and is baptized is going to have a remission of their sins when they go through the waters of baptism. But there is a cleansing that comes into the life of the missionary, the one who is preaching and testifying. The Lord will say in Doctrine and Covenants section 4, O ye that embark in the service of God, see that ye serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. Verse 4, he says, The field is wide already to harvest, and lo, he that thrusteth in his sickle with his might, the same layeth up in store that he perisheth not, but brings salvation to his soul. Jesus will tell his disciples after that whole experience with the woman at the well, he that reapeth receiveth wages. And that's a beautiful connection of serving others and receiving blessings from God. If I seek the Lord's blessings, one of the best ways to do that is in the service of others. If I save a sinner from the error of his ways, I save a soul from death, and I cover a multitude of my own sins. May our religion be something very practical, where we go out and do. May our religion be focused on widows and orphans, and people in pain, people we can help and bring them to Him. I think that's the message of the epistle from James. So with that, we thank you for listening. Next week's Come Follow Me is First and Second Peter. Now, before we go, 
I just want to remind you that we've been working on some new video content on our YouTube channel that you might enjoy. These new videos are in addition to our podcasts and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. So we hope that you'll check them out on our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. We'll leave a link in the description. And with that, make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.